It's Friday, March 18th. Welcome to a very special edition of Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today is quite a crowd. <laughs> the one and only Morgan Housel from Rule Your Retirement and the Motley Fool Answers podcast, Robert Brokamp, the host of Industry Focus, one of the hosts of Industry Focus, the Healthcare Edition, healthcare analyst Christine Harges from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, and the co founder of The Motley Fool. And amongst all his many duties, also the host of the Rule Breakers Investing Podcast, David Gardner. Thank you all so much for being here. Hello. Thanks for having all us. Right. What fun. I've never seen so many microphones around the table <laughs> here in our studios. And in fact, Chris, this feels a little bit like we are the world to me right now. I, you know, uh, w- <laughs> one of our. Choice we're making. Oh, wow. <laughs> sitting next See, to right out of the gate. Right we, should, we should be singing. Nah, maybe just <laughs> you should be singing. Because I've heard Morgan Housel sing. I think, really, just you should be. I haven't. Go um, ahead, Morgan. <laughs> one, actually, one of our colleagues, uh, when, when I was mentioning this gathering, uh, said, Wow, this sounds like the Avengers. This sounds like a gathering of the Avengers. And I was like, Yeah, but like. <laughs> Like a financial podcast version of the Avengers, not really superheroes. Um, so, as as I've said from time to time on Market Foolery, our mission here at the Motley Fool is to help the world invest better. Uh, April is Financial Literacy Month, and from time to time, we have on uh, in various venues on our Fool.com site on different podcasts, we have recommended books to our listeners. But now, for the first time, we're actually going to be giving away an investing library. To ten of our listeners, I should say uh, right out of the gate that um, this is for U.S. residents only, and I will get to the particulars of this contest and how people can win this investing library. Um, but uh, this is going to be ten of us recommending a single book for investors, a book that we think uh, will help investors in one way or another. And Morgan Housel, you're up first. All right. What, what if if you get to give away a book to? Our listeners, what are you giving and why? So, in uh, Warren Buffett's 2003 letter to shareholders, he recommended a book which he does very infrequently. He said everyone should read the book Bull by Maggie Mayhar. Uh, Maggie Mayhar is not an investor, she's a journalist, which is really important in the story because what she, the, the book Bull is about uh, the stock market boom and bust from about the early 80s to 2002. So, huge bull market and then the dot com crash after that. She's not an investor. She's not giving advice. She's not saying what she'd do in the future. She's just from a journalistic lens saying, here's what happened. Here's how investors got into the market, how they invested, what their hopes and dreams were, the whole formation of the, uh, the, the internet bubble in the late 90s, and then the crash and, after, and aftermath afterwards. And it's really important because the bull market and crash from the 80s to 2002 was the first time in U.S. history that a large portion of U.S. households were in the stock market. In the previous crashes, like especially during the Great Depression, huge market crash, only a tiny percentage of Americans owned stocks back then. It was still pretty much a rich person's game. But because of a lot of the changes in the laws in the 1970s and 80s, you had 401ks and IRAs, you started getting mom-and-pop investors into the stock market, which was great, but it also just added this brand new dynamic of of building wealth during the boom and then seeing it evaporate during the bust. And Maggie Mayhart just does an amazing job telling the story uh, from start to finish of what happened and telling individual stories, telling stories about mutual fund managers, about investment bankers, about politicians and regulators and individual investors, and it's just fascinating. Beyond what sounds like an amazing retelling of history, how does it help frame your thinking as an investor? I think one of the things I took away from it 
was the extent to which after the the bust, whether it was the dot-com bubble or later in the for the 2008 financial crash, there was always a finger pointing back to the industry, back to the mutual fund managers or the investment bankers. Uh, and a lot of times that's fair, but I think Maggie Mayhar's book shows pretty clearly that the professional investment managers, the mutual fund managers, the bankers back then, really believed what they were doing just as much as anyone else. And it's easy in hindsight to say everyone knew this was a shell game, they knew what was going on, they were just doing it for the fees. But I think the hopes and dreams of the fund managers were just as strong as anyone else back then. And I think that was true a lot in the 2008 crash, too. A lot of the investment bankers and rating agencies that got the fingers pointed at them, a lot of those people really, truly believed in their work during the run-up. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I read this book on Morgan's recommendation and loved it. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about, I was thinking about this last night, and as, as investors, I, I always feel like it's more important for us to focus on what management tells us they're going to do as opposed to Wall Street's Expectations. I mean, there there are In terms times of quarterly perhaps results. quarterly results, or even annually, or even strategy wise. I think it's it's very easy to get sucked into sort of those Wall Street analyst expectations because that's what's always making the headlines. But really, I mean, for me, I care more about management meeting the benchmarks that they're setting for themselves. And I think this book shines a light on we had really sort of a new new sort of age with with the internet boom and bust. Where there were so many analysts out there that really didn't know how to assess that market landscape, and they were they were pegging these expectations based on really no knowledge whatsoever. And some thought those expectations were just completely out of control. Others thought, "Hey, well, maybe that's rational." But you could see it was really just at the end of the day a lot of guessing. And you would have been better, I think, as an investor to focus on what the management teams were saying. And Amazon was used as an example here, I think, a number of times. Had you just read through every annual letter that Jeff Bezos had ever written, you would have a very clear understanding of what his goals were and how he was measuring the success of this business, versus something like Henry Blodgett, who was just lobbing like $400, $500 (laughs) price targets for no real reason whatsoever. Christine Hargis, what do you got for us? So, my recommendation is not necessarily an investing book at first glance. It is called Influence the Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. Uh, It's a pretty old book. It's uh, published in 1984, and it's a marketing book at heart. But I think it's really valuable to investors because it goes through these six universal principles of persuasion and why they're so effective at getting us to say yes and getting us to do something that's being asked of us. So, the way that he sets it up is, and you can tell that it's an older book by this metaphor, but he says it's like click whir, like playing a tape. You see this trigger, and click, the tape goes in, and whir, it starts to play. And that whir is a set of actions that somebody is trying to get you to do. And so, obviously, this has so many implications for marketing, which, if you're looking at companies that do this sort of consumer marketing, then it has immediate implications. But I think it even goes beyond that. I mean, the some of the principles that he talks about are things like social proof and. Oh, Christine, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. I wanted to give you a gift just before, <laughs> just before you continue. <laughs> um, that's actually so. That's one of the principles that you're referencing, which is reciprocation. So if you give me this gift, all of a sudden I'm going to feel a little bit obligated to give you something else. Hey, he's paying attention. Potentially like an that, even right? greater gift. Yeah. Right. The example I think he uses is like when charities send you stuff in the mail, like little mailing labels. Now you feel obligated to give them some money. Yep. Yeah. Here's our gift. 
to you. And there's also an envelope where you can send us a donation. If you want Yeah, it proves to be <laughs> way more effective of a strategy. Um, so another one that I want to talk about is social proof. And I think this one's pretty directly tied to investing, where you want to be like your peers. You want to be accepted. You want to do what everybody else is doing. And sometimes that is exactly the opposite of what you want to be doing when it comes to stocks. I mean, you don't want to watch a stock go up and up and up and say, oh, this must be a great company. I'm going to get in. Uh, you know, I think this is kind of at the heart of rule breaker investing, really. Uh, it also seems like it's, it's totally in your wheelhouse, Morgan, in terms of uh, just sort of the, the conditioning that we have as human beings and, and how hard it is to fight against those types of emotional responses. Yeah, you know, I think when people read about biases and how people react and how they are so uh, they're influenced by by social proof and whatnot, it's easy to think that you're reading about somebody else and like this stuff doesn't apply to you personally. But it, it always does. That, that I think is the biggest bias is that it's thinking that other biases don't apply to you. They apply to other people, but not yourself. Robert Brokamp, what do you got? I have the investing classic Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Siegel, who is a professor at Wharton. The book first came out in 1994, but he came out with a fifth edition in 2014, so it's updated numbers, but also a couple of chapters about the Great Recession and what happened there. And I really think it's, it's like the history of money in the United States. If you're starting from ground zero, this is the best book to read, because not only does it have the investment returns of cash, gold, stocks, and bonds since 1802. But you'll learn about the Great Depression, the history of the Federal Reserve, how inflation and taxes can affect your portfolio. It has a chapter on behavioral finance, mutual funds, ETFs, covers a lot of ground, does it in nice, readable, bite-sized chunks. So you read it and you're like, okay, I learned something, but I'm not completely bored out of my skull at this point. (laughs) Um, And I think it's crucial, especially during Financial Literacy Month, because Morgan talked about that transition from moving from defined benefit pensions to defined contribution plans to 401ks. It essentially requires all of us to be investing experts. We have to know about all this stuff. So I think this is is pretty much essential reading for everyone who is in charge of planning their own retirements, which, by the way, is just about all of us. Morgan, you've interviewed Jeremy Siegel before. What did you think when you heard this pick? I mean, he's he's a he's a fascinating guy. He's really interesting. He has been criticized by investment professionals more than almost any academic I can think of, because he is he is known to be kind of resolutely bullish. He's all he's all, he's almost always bullish on the stock market. That's the impression he gives, at least. It's not really true, but he's often criticized as kind of a blind cheerleader of stocks. But he's one of the few that has reams of data backing him up. So he's not just out there making blind predictions. He has a lot of data backing him up, but it's so easy, kind of just from his personality and his appearance. Even it's easy to, to he gets mocked a lot. He brings it upon himself sometimes. But uh, he's kind he's, of like the you know the prototypical rumpled professor. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But he's with long, with long crazy hair. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the the thing about it is, if you read the book, you come away very convinced that over the long run, and we're talking, and he, he emphasized this, we're talking like 10, 20, 30 years. Stocks are the place to be because actually, over the long run, stocks are less risky than bonds and cash because, number one, you may not have enough money to do what you want to do if you just invest in cash and bonds. And you're not going to keep up with inflation. And even actually, over longer term periods, like 20 and 30 year holding periods, bonds are actually more volatile than stocks. Their returns are less consistent. So you come away feeling like, yes. Stocks are a great long-term investment, but he points out that we're talking long-term, even as in his book. Since 2000, 
stocks have actually not done so well. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal last month about how actually bonds have beaten stocks so far this century. But it's a long-run game. Exactly. So that's, that's the most important part of the book, is stocks for the long run. And so much of the criticism that is uh, that is put on Jeremy Siegel is you know he's he'll be bullish on stocks and then stocks will have a bad six month period and people right. say will say ha ha he's wrong <laughs> yeah but the the foundation of his books is is returns over ten or twenty or thirty year periods so it's it, it's you know the the difference between his analysis and the criticism is usually just a difference in time span yeah I agree David Gardner any number of books available at your disposal what are you going with I'm going with three books Chris they're all Motley Fool publications. <laughs> I'm I like serious. them already. I'm serious about this. He's breaking the rules. I mean, we, we've, we've written a lot over the years. <laughs> yes. And, you know, by no means do we have the academic um, rigor and backing of a Jeremy Siegel, nor do we have the incredible influence of Robert Cialdini. By the way, both of those gentlemen have, have been through Full HQ in the past, so we've had that opportunity to meet them and have those conversations. But, you know, we've, we've written a lot of stuff for individual investors. So let's lead it right off with um, The Motley Fool's. The Motley Fool's Guide to Investing for Beginners. And the reason I want to highlight this is because of all our of our books, this is the one that was written most recently. Uh, some of our books, and I'm going to mention one that goes back a long way, but a lot of people are coming to us today saying, hey guys, uh, what's, what's a good thing I can get started just to get started with investing? And the beauty of the uh, Investing Guide for Beginners is that it is 75 pages, and it, it really gets right to the root of how to get started investing, and that's really what our organization's about. So, we're proud of that one. And it's exciting to give things away that cost a lot. This one doesn't cost a lot, so it's a little <laughs> bit different from some of the other books. This one's pretty much free. You can get it on, on the Kindle, but we will be happy to include it in the package. So, that's absolutely one of my three. Um, the other two are The Motley Fool's Rule Breakers, Rule Makers. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because um, it's of the things that I've written, the favorite thing that I've ever written, just the enjoyment of writing about rule breaker investing, a very contrary approach to beating the stock market. And it's the first half of the book uh, about rule breakers that I enjoyed writing. My brother Tom wrote the second half, some really good thinking about rule makers. Do you think people should just stop once they get to the halfway point, or should they continue? <laughs> we won't tell anyone. I would say this go just past the halfway point and then decide. Okay. Don't stop right at the halfway point, but you know. Second half in basketball terms, a couple minutes off the clock in the third quarter of the second half, whatever it is, sure. go for it, and then decide. And, and then finally, and this one is a rare printing. Like If you obtain a copy of this, this giveaway is going to give somebody possibly, um, I'll call it 2075 AD gold. Okay. <laughs> because breaking all the rules, which is just a compilation of writings about Amazon.com over the years, is not publicly printed. It's just a private printing that we have here at The Fool, and it just looks at Amazon.com from when we first selected it in 1997, right through the years. Because, in a way, it tells the story of a rule breaker in, 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 in the way that the Rule Breakers, Rule Makers book can't, because it, it was written in 1998 and didn't know it was going to happen over the next 20 years. I am old enough, and my tenure at this company is long enough that I remember when Amazon.com was first recommended in the Fool portfolio back in 1997. And I am curious, because I think that you know this company and Jeff Bezos as a CEO, um, certainly you've studied as much of this business and this CEO as any, probably any company that you. It's have my recommend. favorite company, and I include our own. 
Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. The company you co-founded is second to Amazon? It is. Ooh. It truly is. Um, I, I'm curious if uh, what uh, what was for you the most challenging point in time in terms of looking at the business and looking at Bezos and thinking, because you cannot, over the last two decades, you cannot have been 100% confident and bullish the entire time. And I'm assuming at some point there was a low. It might have been a very slight dip, but what for you was the moment where you're like, boy, I really hope Bezos knows what he's doing. <laughs> I, w- I wish I had something much subtler than this answer, something much more nuanced. But watching the stock drop from ninety-five to about seven dollars a share in the course of two thousand one two was was definitely the lowest moment since our cost was three dollars and twenty-one cents, and we'd watched it go to ninety-five. We had a thirty bagger. Watching that almost evaporate. Of course, a lot of other things were falling down uh, during that period, but. Um, uh, the Amazon.bomb cover by Barron's just preceding that started to look like it would be right. And there were some prominent analysts saying they're not going to have the cash necessary to continue their business. And so that was a serious gut check for all investors. In my case, I just had my head under the pillow. Enough other <laughs> stocks were falling down that, that I, I, it didn't represent any real bravery on my part or anybody else's part, I don't think, who was a Motley Fool member who was holding on to that stock just because um, it was at the time. Just one of so many things that were in deep trouble, and at least I guess we pat ourselves on the back that we're lazy and that we're inert and that we don't take much action, especially when things are looking bad. Jay, uh, Jason, what do you got? Sure, uh, going with Citizen Coke: The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism by Barto Elmore, and I'm not exactly sure where I got the idea to read this book. I think I just saw the title and, and immediately. Harken back to my isn't Georgia it, roots. Isn't it thought. given out to every resident in Georgia? <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> Quite possibly. But but I read it. I read it actually after we had moved up here. So maybe maybe that doesn't really uh, pertain to me. But but either way, I think it's a neat story. Uh, investing books, I think, for many people can be seen as somewhat boring or whatnot. This is actually a very neat story. I think with a an iconic brand that virtually anyone in the country can can recognize and relate to. Uh, Coca-Cola is seen everywhere. And and so the author Barto Elmore t- talks about Coca-Cola capitalism, which is basically the, it's the term he uses to refer to Coca-Cola's outsourcing strategy that it used to grow its business. Uh, some businesses may be vertically integrated, so to speak, to where they they produce everything in-house and it's just they're taking care of everything from from soup to nuts. Coca-Cola did a very good job of of banding together all of these different resource providers, whether it was water, sugar, caffeine, bottling, uh, and they really took a lot of risk off of their plate by sort of allocating the production out to other suppliers and sources all over the country. And it pertains to a lot of businesses that we cover today, businesses that we like here at The Fool, even. Uh, McDonald's, maybe not so much, but Apple, I think, is another good example. Pepsi, a number of other companies out there that really followed this business model and have done very well with it historically. But then I think it forces you even to look forward and see, okay, I understand the benefits of this model. I understand what it, what it has done for this company to date. But what about going forward? We know the market is always looking forward. Is this something that can be sustained economically or even environmentally? And I think you could argue in both cases. It's it's not necessarily a shoe in there. I think environmentally, water is a finite resource. Uh, sugar, caffeine—they're all finite resources. And then when you consider 
just just the general nature that we're probably not drinking as much soda as we used to. Soda, I think, Certainly was a very, North America. very neat concept when it first came out. Uh, but but we're recognizing the health effects there, and so you see Coca Cola, for example, responding to this by doing things like buying the Honest Tea Company, which I certainly applaud. That that's a great business. We've had Seth uh, here before at Full HQ. Uh, fun to listen to him tell that story. But I, I think generally speaking, this is a really a book that's very relatable for any, even if you're not an investor, you could read this book and I think uh, enjoy it. Um, and if you are an investor, I think it can make you consider a number of different questions in regard to the businesses that you cover or that you own in your portfolio. It's an easy read. It was a lot of fun. I will just wrap up with my recommendation, uh, and it is uh, yet another person, uh, David, who has graced us with his presence here at Full HQ, and it's Michael Lewis's great book, The Big Short. Um, I can count on one hand the number of books in my lifetime that I have read more than once, and this is one of them. And uh, part of it is because nobody writes like Michael Lewis. I think he makes anyone's short list of the great nonfiction writers in America. If you saw the movie, uh, and the movie is is great, the uh, it's yet another situation where the book is even better. I think in terms of takeaways for investors. One of the things that's just hammered home in the book, and this is something that you touched on, Morgan, and, and you as well, Christine, uh, just the notion of pack mentality on Wall Street and how hard that is to overcome. Because, and I'm talking about among professional investors, because the big short is about a few individuals and, and small groups of, of smart people who realize what is about to happen to the housing market in the United States, and no one believes them. <laughs> Absolutely no one believes them, and they have to fight like hell to try and figure out how they are going to profit off of the impending collapse of, of the housing market. Um, and uh, lastly, I would say, and you know, you touched on this with Citizen Coke and, and sort of what a, what a nice read it is, Jason. Some of the characters in the book uh, who are real-life people, Dr. Michael Burry, who in the movie is played by Christian Bale, Steve Eisman, who in the movie is played by Steve Carell, uh, are just fascinating characters. As investors, you learn from them, but I also found, just as a reader, just completely rooting for them, just completely wanting them to win. So that was my that's my recommendation. As the value of your own property declined dramatically. <laughs> you're rooting for them to win, Chris. Yes. Well fortunately I had the benefit of reading this after the collapse. <laughs> you know, this was when did this come out? Twenty ten, twenty eleven? Yeah. Um so those are our six books. We didn't have room at the table nor enough microphones for Ron Gross, Matt Argusinger, Megan Brinsfield, and Uncle Joe Mager. But you can get their recommendations and enter to win all 10 books, or I should say all 12 books, since David broke the rules and added two more, <laughs> um, by going to podcast.fool.com. And you can enter your email address. Again, unfortunately, this is for U.S. residents only. Uh, we're going to keep this open for a couple of weeks. And appropriately, I think we will be drawing 10 winners on April 1st, which, as we've talked about before, David, it's our holiday. It is. We've claimed it, and we, in, in, in fact, since the dawn of time, it was foreordained that the Motley Fool would have April Fool's Day as its holiday. And it's exciting to watch that prophecy fulfilled every year, Chris. <laughs> I will put the uh, URL in the description of this podcast, but go to podcast.fool.com, get the complete list of books, 
and enter to win all 12 of them and kick off Financial Literacy Month tonight. Robert Brokamp, Christine Harges, David Gardner, Jason Moser, Morgan Hassel, thank you all for being here. Thank you. Great, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.